Welcome to Places, everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In this episode, I want to look at the ways in which church and gospel music can shape an artist and impact his skills as a performer. Like my guest, Ephraim Sykes, a veritable triple threat of acting, singing, and dancing. As a kid and teenager, Ephraim had a natural affinity for dance and music, and his outlet was Sunday worship. Ephraim's father and mother were deeply involved in their church as the preacher and choir director. Joining the gospel choir wasn't a conscious decision, Ephraim says. It was just what we did. The spirited singing of gospel choirs and the intentional focus of church service greatly impacted Ephraim and imbued him with a sense of faith, gratitude, and purpose that have kept him grounded in the competitive and fast-paced world of Broadway. Since getting his BFA in dance, Ephraim has performed with the Alvin Ailey Company, danced and acted in the original cast of Hamilton, and won over audiences as Seaweed in NBC's Hairspray Live. He's now the star of Ain't Too Proud, a Broadway musical about the iconic Motown group The Temptations. Ephraim plays David Ruffin, the showman of the group, who sang My Girl and I Wish It Would Rain, among other chart-topping songs, and was known for his swagger and smooth style. Like Ephraim, David Ruffin was the son of a preacher from the South, and the raspy quality of David's charismatic voice is one that Ephraim recognizes immediately from church. Ephraim realizes that Ain't Too Proud is pure entertainment for many ticket buyers, and he aims to give them a great evening. But he knows how significant the show is for other audience members. The homage it pays to Motown and Black history, the way it speaks openly and directly about God, it's familiar territory for him. Before each show, the cast regularly gathers for a prayer circle. And you can guess who's poised to lead the service. This is my interview with Ephraim Sykes. Ephraim, nice talking to you. Hey, nice talking to you. Um, I've been really interested in your work for a few years now, and I remember the exact moment, actually, that my interest in you as a performer took sort of a new turn. Um, it was after you had been in Hamilton for a while, and you landed a big TV role in NBC's production of Hairspray Live, oh, cool. and um, I remember you posted an announcement on Instagram about it. Okay. And it was like the first time you could say it, yeah. say that you had been cast. I think this was in 2016. Yeah. And as a caption, you wrote, I've been wanting to share this news for weeks now. God is so good. And I really took note of it. And as I scrolled through some of your other posts, I was like, oh, I'm seeing that kind of as a hashtag and as like yeah. a caption a lot. And I wanted to ask to start, how do you think about God being present in your work as an artist? Uh, ever-present, you know what I mean? Omnipresent is the right word. It's the reason that um, I'm here at all, of course. The, the reason that we're here at all, but especially when it comes to performing and being able to you know, utilize our gifts and talents. Uh, and I've had the, the great fortune of being able to do so uh, with pieces that matter, that say things, I think, to humanity. I often you know, lead a prayer circle before every one of my shows. And uh, something that struck me maybe a couple of weeks ago is just like, 
these gifts that we were given and everything that we are ha that we have in terms of our talents is literally just to give right back to God. You know what I mean? They, it's almost like they never were ours in the first place. They always belonged to him. So I just always have truly known that all of my successes and every opportunity that I've ever had was not because of, not really because of how hard I've worked or because of how talented I am or anything like that. It's literally all the talents and everything that I have is simply because God gave it to me. You have really strong roots in the church Very. and in gospel. Yeah. And I'm really curious how that creates a foundation for artistic work. Yeah. So I'd like to go back to your childhood in Florida a little okay. bit. And um, your father was a preacher and yeah. your mother was a choir director. Yeah. Is that right? And uh, so your family was really deeply involved. Oh, yeah. And I'm wondering what were the expectations for you and for siblings of yours who are also performers in terms of involvement in church and in terms of joining the gospel choir? Um, I can't necessarily say there were expectations. It's just what we did. I think especially uh, if you know anything about the, the black gospel church and especially down in the South, singing, dancing, uh, I can't call it performing, we call it worshiping, is a part of the church service. So of course, with my father being a pastor, my mother being a, always being a, she was a gospel singer and always a choir director. Actually, my mother was a drummer too. And you know, they, it's just a part of what you do when you uh, go to church on Sundays and how it's a part of our praise and worship. So we were just immersed in it from birth. Uh, and so therefore, again, it wasn't no, there, there were no expectations. If I had come out and I, I wasn't a dancer or a singer at all, my dad would have been fine with me being an usher or being a, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. or maybe following his footsteps of being a pastor, whatever. My, my family's always been very supportive of whatever we have. So it's like whatever talents you bring, you can access the church that way. Yeah, yeah, whatever you have. Uh, use it to the fullest extent, study it, perfect it, work on your craft, but also, you know, be willing to, even to the, every time I go home to this day, they're like, come up here and sing. They're like, huh. would you be, would you mind dancing for us? Because for uh, them and my church and my parents and, you know, my whole family down there, it's still something that they see when I dance or when I sing, they do see God or they do, you know, feel his presence. So they see, you know, and what we call the anointing. Uh, and it's a reason why we they say share your gifts because people witness it. And especially in church setting, they witness something that God is doing through somebody. Mm -hmm. So would you mind breaking down some of the mechanics of gospel? Like okay. as a child, knowing that you have some vocal ability uh -huh. and you join the gospel choir, how does uh, your mom as the teacher or other teachers that you worked with or other choir directors, how do they... Um, like transmit the learning of this kind of singing. And part of why I'm interested in this is because I think for uh, secular kids who have an interest in performance and who have the ability to sing, their parents enroll them in voice lessons yeah, or yeah. in drama okay, classes. I see. I see. So let's talk about the like the mechanics of learning how to sing. It's crazy because it's, there's no real mechanics to it. It's much more of a communal uh and again, going back to sharing, it's something that um, when when the whole church is in songs, like, you know, they pull out a hymnal and everybody sings. Mm -hmm. Everybody does it. Uh, and especially when it comes to singing, singing is one of those things they always say, uh, if you can hear it, you can reproduce it. So if you can hear the pitch, if you can hear the tone, no, normally your voice can match it. That's how we learn to speak even um, as babies. It's something that is just innate. 
Uh, so again, when it comes to church, and uh, I think there are things that are innate when it comes to the black church and gospel singers and stuff like that. Like, you know, my mother and father both being able to sing really well. And I think, you know, that, that kind of stuff is, uh, I think, transmitted through blood as well. And my mother was always the kind, she didn't really care if you had the greatest voice. I never had the greatest voice, to be honest. My sister is really like the singer, singer of the family. But if you love to sing and if you were willing to use your voice, she said, come get up here in the choir and we'll add your voice to this choir. And then it's just about then, you know, teaching the songs. This is what, you know, songs you'll sing and practicing every Tuesday night would be up in the choir stand. And she's saying, all right, this is your part. Sing this part. You know, so I was always, it was, a, it was always a, a part of a big group and everybody using their voice, whatever your voice was. I think that's always been the, maybe the mechanics of the gospel church again. So it was less of an emphasis on, on pitch or dynamics or um, no, there's harmony. Plenty, and... There's plenty emphasis on the pitch and dynamics and harmony. Uh, but again, it wasn't because they weren't trying to say, let me hear your voice do it. That's more for like the lead vocalist or whatever like that. Uh -huh. And even still, there wasn't that much. There's like, just sing these words. And if we like the sound, it's about the sound. Again, if you can hear it, you can reproduce it. So coming to a choir in a gospel choir setting, you know, there's a, I don't want to call it a standard, but like we kind of, again, growing up in that atmosphere, you're used to the songs and how they go. You know what the pitches and harmonies already are because you've been surrounded by them your whole life. And my mother was really great at making sure, um, our dynamic range, like you were saying, in terms of how we sing the music, what parts really need to be emphasized, what mm. things need to be held back. But that's all because of what we were saying. And then again, how the whatever the song structure was. But it wasn't, it's really not as technical in the church like that. Uh -huh. I mean, there are some, don't, don't get me wrong, there are some churches that have these phenomenal choirs and have, uh, you know, a lot of gospel teachers. But speaking, more generally to the Black Gospel Church and to my church experience, uh, it was a little bit more on the layman's side. They're like, no, sing this, and this is how it feels. These are your notes. And we just practice like that. I don't, mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Was she doing the arrangements, or are there kind of set arrangements? The arrangements are more so set. Um, because again, we weren't doing original music. We, you know, these are songs that you know you could hear on any you know different gospel albums from different mm -hmm. gospel artists and choirs all around the country. So a lot of these songs, we already knew, you know how they go. Was it a social experience? A social experience, how do you mean? Like, were all your friends in the choir too? Oh yeah, I mean, it was a it was a youth choir, you know what I mean? So all the youth in the church pretty much, for the most part, were all friends anyway. Um, so that was just another moment that we all got to hang out and socialize and be together. And, you know, it was, especially growing up in church as a kid, you know what I mean? We always looked out, you know, looked for the other kids so we can find, you know, ways of playing with each other. Because, mm -hmm. you know, when you're at certain ages, you don't take the church as seriously, you know, but you're there all the time. We're all there all the time. So this is another time that we can find our people to play with. Uh, right. But th th there was a level to, you know, we, uh, in that church and in that, that city even, uh, we love, all of us love singing and dancing as kids. You know, me and all my friends love to sing and dance. Mm -hmm. I remember even in high school, we like, you know, I went to a performing arts elementary, middle, and high school. Ah. It was just the performing arts was a part of our culture. I think it stemmed from the church and bled out into the streets and vice versa. Uh, so again, that was another moment. We all love playing the drums and playing the piano. Like, mm -hmm. you know, no, if it was a in a church setting or not, you know what I mean? If you put an instrument in front of us as kids, we were going to grab it and try to make music with it. It's just what we did. And did you think of those as a kind of art form or was it an expression of faith? Like, were you separating the two? Not at all. 
not at all. There was no separation. The the for me uh, growing up as well as as well as now, uh, gospel music, church music, singing and playing in those realms was the same uh, as singing secular music. Mm-hmm. Um, I can it felt the same uh, how I expressed my myself and how I used my voice or how I played whatever instruments, even how I danced was still stemming from the same place. There was no delineation between the two. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me wonder now that you have had so many years as a performer on Broadway and um, in dance companies and so on, whether you think of being a career artist as a kind of calling Absolutely. Absolutely. It's for sure a calling 100%. I think, I would say, I would beg to say for most artists. And uh, it's tricky because, you know, uh, artists are everywhere. They don't always, like you said, uh, career artists, they don't always make their living by doing it. But to be an artist is something that, again, it's a gift. A gift is something that has been given. And then it's for you to give. Uh, So I think that in itself is a calling. It's just whether or not you choose to answer it or whether you choose to use it. Uh, so having the fortune of being uh, being able to make a living with my craft, with what I love to do and with what I've been gifted to do, again, like I always say, God is good because it's so it's so above me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I've the reason I'm here at all, I, I didn't plan this in any way. Hmm. I never did. I just happened to, you know, one door open and then the next door open. And you know what I mean? I was yeah. led this way. And I think a lot of that I, I stems from the church and from my father, my father being a pastor, and that's how he uses his voice. And that's mm-hmm. how he lifts and encourages people. My mother is of the same cloth. Um, so that's what I come from. Uh, but my, I never wanted to be on the pulpit. I never wanted to be a pastor. Uh-huh. But again, I always believed what my father said and understood it and felt the power of it. And the same for my mother and wanted to do it in my own way. My own way happened to be with an instrument or with some ballet shoes or with right. uh, on a Broadway stage somewhere. So you got your BFA um, in dance. Yeah. So with all the different kinds of music training that you had growing up and instruments, how did dance become the professional pathway? My senior year of high school, I was still in marching band and other bands and stuff like that. I was still having very much an, an instrumentalist playing the drums, saxophone, but dancing became my focus, uh, what we called the focus or my, uh, almost like your major. Mm-hmm. Uh, that started to be my major, I want to say in middle school is when I really started to dedicate more of my time to dance than to music. But still, uh, my senior year, I auditioned for like Juilliard and a couple other big schools that uh, I would have wanted to go pursue dance at, and I didn't end up getting to getting into it or getting into those ones, uh, especially Juilliard. That was kind of where I, I had tunnel vision, I had my sight set on yeah. it. And not getting into it, I was just like, well, I love music so much. I was like, well, I don't really know what else there is to do, or I don't really see myself. I didn't really know too much about, I knew about the BFA program at Fordham, but to me, Fordham sounded like out of reach for me. And I ended up, one of the schools that came to me actually was a school uh, in HBCU, you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Uh, Tennessee State University came to me and they were like, we love what you do. We don't even have a dance program. We have a theater program that we would give you a full scholarship to. And you could also like, and we know that you're an instrumentalist. We have this great marching band. So I was like, all right, I'll go to Tennessee State because it's free and I can pursue my music, keep working on drumming. I'll see what this theater thing is. Mm-hmm. And I'll just, I was kind of thinking I'd just go my way as a drummer more so. I wanted to like 
I had started playing for different professional gospel singers and stuff like that. And I wanted to like maybe really pursue that more. So I figured I'd give dance one last shot that summer. Um, and I started going to the Alvin Ailey. I would go to the Alvin Ailey Summer Intensive. They have a six-week summer intensive every summer. I had gone once before, and this time I was like, I'll go to Ailey one more time just to dance one more time before I pretty much give it up. And two weeks before the program ended, they were like, Ephraim, uh, the head of the program, said, would you come do a, a solo for us, uh, me and a couple of other faculty members? I was like, okay. So I did the solo that I had learned um, my senior year of high school. And when I finished, they were like, we want to see if you'd be interested in joining the BFA program here and going for them. We just send over your transcripts, but we'll give you a scholarship to come here instead. Wow. And I was like, uh, okay. Like literally two weeks before I was supposed to start school in Tennessee, I canceled it and packed my bags up. And me and my dad and my best friend got in a U-Haul and drove all my crap up to New York. <laughs> and I've been here ever since. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like I said, it never was my plan at all uh, to be here. So after you finished the program, you joined Alvin Ailey too. Yes. And then you sort of found your way into Broadway dance through an audition for Little Mermaid. Yes. Was there ever a point then around those years when you're kind of figuring like, well, what comes next for me about bringing those talents like back to Florida or back to the church? Oh, I never wanted to go back to Florida. <laughs> That's for sure. Not, you know. Or how about I, the church somewhere else? No, uh, I didn't. Uh, I kind of think I, I've always had the sense that, not and this is not because I don't love you know my home church and or the church in general. Uh, that's a whole other sort of conversation. But I've always just had the I don't know sort of the the, the foresight or insight in, in how I saw myself that I sort of belonged out in the world a little bit more. That I, I'm not a church boy as much as I am a church boy, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I've always needed to, I've always felt just as comfortable or more comfortable outside of the walls, being more, um, I don't know, more of an everyday person and affecting those people. Mm. Uh, that always felt more right to me. There's a really hilarious anecdote that I read uh, in which you were going in for your, one of your first auditions, I guess it was for Little Mermaid or one of the earlier ones, and you were asked to bring your book to the audition. Oh, yeah. And you thought book does that mean the bible well that was just like when they said bring your book i was like i literally was like what book are you talking about it was like i bring the bring the bible cool i got a couple of the books from college uh had no clue they were talking about a musical song book i was like hey okay so um i love that kind of fish out of water thing so what Completely. was all of the what were some of these like new methods and techniques that you had to acclimate to in being oh a Broadway dancer as opposed to what you've called a dancer dancer? Well, the first things was learning all these terms like books or learning the term. I remember my first rehearsal, I learned uh, the first big number, Under the Sea in The Little Mermaid. And uh, when I finished learning that, they were like, all right, let's take it from the top and let's go to the button. And I was like, what? <laughs> I have I don't have a button. This is a zipper. <laughs> what are you talking about? They they laughed like, so, so hard because they like oh a button is like how you the end of the song is like da 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 that's the button yeah I was like oh so stuff like that but also and on Broadway they deal with like numbers so like they track your spacing and like how you move and being in the right line and in the right space uh, in reference to everybody else by looking at numbers at the front of the stage mm -hmm. and I was like as a concert dancer we never use numbers you use your eyes. Huh. You eyeball everything. You feel each other a lot more in concert dance. So that took me a while to get used to because I was like, I'm 
in line with you because I'm looking dead at you. You don't need to tell me to go stand on eight. Um, right. That was actually more, that was more difficult for me to like, now I got to think about dancing, but also look at what number I'm doing to make sure I'm in the right spot versus like, I can What's the reason? Is that the because there are set pieces in a Broadway show and there aren't um, in dance? I honestly don't know the real answer to that. I would choose to believe that it's more so because a lot of Broadway dancers don't come from a concert setting. Mm-hmm. So they're not necessarily used to dancing in those kind of formations, those kind of pieces, that kind of work that really requires you to look and feel each other. On Broadway, it's a lot more presentational to the audience. You're talking and singing to them. Okay. So you're not... Uh, you're you're not it's you're not always thinking uh with so much group mentality. You're not always moving mm-hmm. and really taking in each other the way that you do when you're uh, a concert dancer. Uh, also, you know, because you're not again you know, on the Broadway stage. It's not just dancers. There's also singers and you know the actors and stuff like that that don't dance. So they need something different to help them figure out if they're standing in the right place or not. But also the the other thing is that I think for Broadway shows because they're long running, you know, if you're lucky enough, so that you have to replace people, and it's easy when you're replacing somebody. You don't rehearse often as a company. I see. You know, you rehearse one person. I, my first rehearsal was just me, one other person in a studio, and he's teaching me, you know, these whole this whole piece, or you know, all these different production numbers that have 15 other people around me, but they're not there. So. Uh, in order to easily plug somebody in, say, just stand on this number, stand on that number, go to this place, that place, and then they can just plug you right into the show when it's time. And they don't have to like worry about making the whole company rehearse with you over and over again. Does that make mm-hmm, sense? Mm-hmm. I think it makes it easier to kind of plug people in that way. Yeah. So you were in a few different Broadway shows after Little Mermaid and uh-huh. then joined the original cast of Hamilton. Yep. Were you with it when it was downtown? Yeah. Cool. So... How does dance work differently in a show like Hamilton? Huh. D- differently? Well, how do you mean differently? Well, I guess I have an idea of how I think it works in Hamilton. Yeah, I was going to say. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it just seems much more um, deeply connected to the narrative of the story. Yes. Like when there's, when the actor who's playing Hamilton is saying physically what's happening in the war yeah. the dancers are are doing that yeah. they're doing the motion yeah. and it's not necessarily the most challenging dance maneuver yeah but it is like deeply tied to the storytelling absolutely i think that's just the uh that's kind of the brilliance i would say of, of andy blankenbuehler gotta give him his credit on that he's a very much a visionary he's a director in his own right and for him uh dance is and for as well as the, the people that he chooses to work with, uh, we're kind of people that we choose. We tell stories through dance. A lot of times, dance can be like you know people think of acrobatics and flexibility, and dance is so much more than that. Dance is uh, dance is like you said, is pedestrian. I think it might have been the word that you were looking for in terms of when it's not a big dance maneuver, but it's like something as just shaking somebody's hand can be a dance move. Mm. Or uh, just walking slowly can be a dance move. Looking at, so you know what I mean? So it can be very verbatim to the words, like what is the story that you're uh, telling? So I think Andy did a brilliant job of saying, these are the words of Hamilton. This is literally what's happening in this world. The whole world dances. Uh, if you're able to just choreograph it in a way that you can see how the world moves. Therefore, we get uh, kind of stick to these lyrics and highlight 
uh, what is being said through the lyrics and save the big explosive dance movements for when, you know, that's called for. But in all the other moments, it's just as powerful to watch somebody stand still as it is to watch somebody do a split. Hmm. You know what I mean? So I think he, it was just that kind of uh, brilliance and subtlety and then knowing how to truly, you know, tell stories with your body uh, without kind of overshooting it, trying to perform. You don't always need to right. perform. Well, I'm thinking about it in contrast to or in comparison to um, Newsies, yeah. um, which you were in the ensemble for, yeah. uh, because that one is like, it's like leaps and more yeah. leaps and all yeah. these pirouettes. And it just looks so, so acrobatic and so it heavy is. on this like cardio element it of, is. It really is. of jumping. And you have to have, I'm sure you all have knee pads under your costume pants. Yeah. Is there a part of you as a dancer that wants to hit those in a show? Like when you come into a show and it's more or less physically demanding, and I want to get into Ain't Too Proud yeah. as a conduit there. Yeah. What do you kind of hope for personally? I personally, and that's also because I've done shows like Newsies, I've done shows like Memphis, and other big high-flying, like, you know, and even in concert dance. And then I worked in the, the kind of commercial world where, like, it's flashy and it's like, let's do your big tricks. I used to, you know, do some, a lot of hip hop and like, you know, break dance and let's figure out the craziest things we can do with our body, which is especially for a young man, a young boy growing up, how I did, who was also an athlete. That was fun. That attracted me to dance. Sure. Uh, but now that I'm older and also more developed as an artist, I much preferred like, how subtle can I be? And, mm. you know, I mean, and really draw people in. I love that kind of stuff. And then, but like, I also look forward to having the moments that like, because I can be so subtle that when I really want to like shake everything and like explode, I can do that. You know what I mean? And I can do that with something that I, most people, I love when I can walk down the street and people can't tell if I'm a dancer or not. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. and like, or from, I've done, I remember when I was doing Hairspray and I came in, the dancers had already been rehearsing like two weeks before I got there. And a lot of them were from LA, so they didn't really know me like that. And uh, I was doing all the scene work and the singing first and they started plugging me into the dance numbers. And uh, I started doing some some of the turns and spins, but I like to do them in a more pedestrian way because I'm playing a guy from the 1960s who mm -hmm. probably didn't go to a ballet school, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so when I started doing these turns and spins, but in this pedestrian way, some of the dancers around me would be like, oh, did you train? I was like, yes, of course I trained. <laughs> They're like, oh, we didn't know. It's like, it's crazy to think that, you know, I did all this training all my life to kind of throw it away in order to look like a regular human being mm -hmm. that can do some extraordinary things here and there. Because then all of a sudden I'm flying around and doing splits and toe touches. They're like, wait, we didn't know that that's what you did. It's like, well, that's the whole point, right? Right. Well, it's like you have to learn the rules to be able to put the rules aside. Exactly. It's like jazz. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you learn all your skills properly, learn how to play, play all the, you know, classical music and then completely destruct it to the point where it sounds like complete chaos to the layman's person. Totally. But to a musician, you're like, oh, you're like... High science, like how are you even coming up with this stuff? Yeah, it kind of relates to the moment in Ain't Too Proud, your current musical about the Temptations, right. when you you make you. I think you have an earlier appearance, but when you make your like, character entrance, yeah, yeah. And so basically, uh, for those who haven't seen it, the turntable circles you onto the stage, and you hold this pose where you have one leg sort of straight and one leg sort of bent and you're tilting the microphone forward at this like really like sexy angle. <laughs> and it's like, 
has so much swagger to it. And I just, you can tell everyone in the audience is like, oh my God, here, here it comes. Oh man, that's so cool. There's like a real kind of energy in anticipation when you, when the, the turntable circles you on. And I'm just wondering in terms of like showing everybody like, oh, you didn't think I could do this, but I can do this. Right. Um, what people anticipate with the character you're playing, David right. Ruffin, who was so much this um, showman and had so much personality that he yeah. brought to The Temptations? Um, for me, I think, again, it's what you said. David Ruffin was like swagger personified, like almost to a fault. Like if swagger <laughs> could actually, be, if you could have actually too much swag, that would be David Ruffin. You know what I mean? Like he was truly a, a, a sort of the bad boy in that way. And he was sexy and charismatic and you know what I mean a rough around the edges David wasn't so flashy he was subtle kind of still you know what I mean if you actually look at what David was doing especially on TV stuff like it was just a quick move of the hip so the swivel his feet or he'll drop to his knees real quick and come back up and now all of a sudden he's mm-hmm. standing and singing like a normal dude on a street corner mm-hmm. and I think people find sexiness and excitement in somebody that is so Round the way, as we, as we say, you know what I mean. Somebody that you like, you feel like you could maybe do that. Um, Was he comfortable in his body? Oh, so comfortable in his body. I mean, I don't think not nearly to the degree that I am in terms of like being a trained dancer where I know how to do all these things. But this is how he moves. He had no question about you know where his shoulders were, what his feet were doing, what his voice was doing. It was always about looking at that lady in the front row, and I'm gonna sing to you because I know what I do is gonna be, like, it's gonna get her. Like, you know, it's, it's that kind of swagger and confidence that people know that he has. Uh, so, for me, coming out in that pose or whatever, like that, I literally I talk to myself in, in, in my head that whole way around when I, is this the donut, the, it's the turntable is circling, circling me around? I'm like, because I'm nervous all the time. And it's like, that's not David. David's not nervous. He's like, mm. so I have to think of, I, I, my my last thought is always, there was one Christmas, maybe two Christmases ago, my grandma, uh, she's like not really able to travel anymore because she's getting older. And so she hasn't been able to see Ain't Too Proud yet. So anything she's able to see is whatever comes on TV for her. And uh, one, this two Christmases ago, she was uh, sitting in the living room. She said, Ephraim, just dance for me, please. I was like, Grandma, for real? She's like, yeah, put on some James Brown. I just want to watch you dance. <laughs> and I remember then, like, just busting out and closing my eyes and just really dancing however I felt and doing it for her with no nerves, with no... And she was so proud and she was clapping and singing and screaming and stuff. And I started to think, like, let me start to let me perform for grandma and i heard the story from otis that when he would sing and do my girl especially it's he, otis the original otis williams temptation. yes the original temptation he said david never really uh what's when he talked about my girl he actually wasn't talking about a love interest he wouldn't he honestly wouldn't let some most women get too close to him mm. uh he would always sing that my girl for him was about his mother Huh. And his mother was so like beaten down, but it's like that's the ultimate love, you know what I mean? So to make him feel that comfortable, and then you add this the sexiness, and then you talk to the girl in the front row. But I had to start from the place of like, who am I most comfortable and excited to maybe perform for? And then I can put all my swag and however I feel about it and do my what it feels amazing to me. So when you have some of the more challenging maneuvers, um, like the famous microphone catch into yeah. the split, yeah. If that moment ever doesn't go as planned in a live show, I'm sure most of the time it goes well. But Knock on wood. but yeah, but you probably if it if a moment doesn't go exactly as you planned, you probably have to 
stay as David. Yeah. Like, he'd be like, well, I'll just... I'm I, still the coolest guy I in the meant, world. Like, I meant to do that. Or either I meant to do that. Oh, no, I didn't mean to do that. But look, I can do this. Like, a lot <laughs> yeah. of times it's so funny. Whenever I drop the mic, I do this little trick, and I don't want to give away to anybody that hasn't seen the show yet. And the audience goes almost crazier when I drop the mic than when I actually catch it. Like, you know what I mean? It's all yeah. about... You know, they say, never let them see you sweat. Totally. And so it's like, all right, what else can I figure out? I'm going to do something special. And that's also, I think, exciting for the audience because they witnessed something go wrong. And then they yeah. witnessed you, like, somehow overcome it and keep going. They love to so see you somebody like, conquer something like that. You, like, elegantly find a way to, to get the microphone back? Something like that. <laughs> something like that. I, I, I'll say I, I have a, a surprise. You know what I mean? It's like, we keep rolling with this show. And mm-hmm. uh, you would have never thought that I could keep going after that, you know? And you have to, you know, have fun with it. You got to, you know, if you can't laugh at yourself, it makes other people feel awkward laughing or like enjoying a, what could be an awkward moment. It's like, no, this is okay. This happens all the time. I think that makes everybody feel a little bit more alive all of a sudden. Well, I'll say that, I'll say that it was well executed the night that I attended. Oh, well, good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard you talk about the raspy quality of your voice that you've um, kind of trained with uh, to prepare for this role, yeah. and that it it both to get David sound, but also to have this kind of preacher like quality. Yeah, can you describe what that sound is and what makes it distinct to preachers? Um, well, historically, uh, where R and B music even comes from uh, goes way back to slavery, really, right? And beyond that, honestly, to its African roots, which is way beyond. But as we know it, the blues really is the element to it. So back in the day, way back in the day, they were called, before it was even called blues, it was called shouts and hollers. Mm -hmm. And you could hear, you know, distinct voices from, you know, whatever farm to whatever plantation to plantation, you know, as they worked during the day, they'd sing to get to their work, right? It almost started to compete with each other, like who had the best work song or the worst work voice. Now, this is singing through so much immense pain and turmoil and trauma. It sounds like screams against shouts and hollers. And finally, when they, upon freedom, whatever that means, and they started to use that in instruments and they started to become the blues and become jazz and stuff like that, rhythm and blues reemerged uh, right before Motown and all that. And it was the same idea, like, you know, R&B was about the, they called them screamers. Uh, these guys that like had this shout, like shouting kind of quality that they put over this jazz, you know, rhythmic music, and that became the thing that everybody was listening to. But of course, again, all of this music and all of those shouts and hollers, and even those songs earlier on were from the church. That's the only place that we were allowed to sing. So the preaching and the stacked style of singing coming up in the gospel church, especially down south, is what has always existed in our music. Um, and that hasn't changed. And it's always that kind of pain and struggle that you can literally hear. You can hear it in somebody's voice. Uh, no matter if they're singing about the best day of their life or not, uh, whatever somebody's gone through, you can hear it in their tone. David was definitely somebody, he's a product, you know, came from a place called Why Not Mississippi. You know what I mean? Like as country as it gets, as Southern as it gets, his father being a pastor, uh, or a preacher um, and growing up along the doing the Chitlin circuit, you know, they had a lot of gospel touring acts back in that day. So that's what he was, you know, that's what he was, came up with. And that's mm. what he joined when he was 13, 14 years old. That's a real brother. connection to your life. That's exactly. And he was a drummer too, just like, you know what I mean? Like truly, truly connected in that way. He's known for having that raspy tongue, you know, because even my daddy, even my daddy had to learn special techniques too, because for a pastor to, or preacher to, 
preach every Sunday or like they do it more than every Sunday. They're like doing these kind of, you know, speaking like that so many times throughout the week. And I don't know if you've been to a black church, but when black pastors get heated, they start to really shout and mm. scream and holler and they really start to like preach at you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, you can, you can hear blow the, your voice out. You really can blow your voice out quickly. It's like you can hear the fire coming from up under them. Um, so, but over time it put, it makes your voice raspier and over time your voice does change to have a smokier kind of, you know, quality to it. Um, so I remember when I started doing my Broadway shows and I started having to sing more, I'll never forget. I was doing the show Motown. I had to understudy, uh, one of my best friends who's now passed one of the, uh, most, one of the most sensational performance I've ever seen in my life incredible voice incredible mover I was his understudy and he was on vacation for a whole week so the first part of the week I was doing fine my voice felt fine it was pretty clear and all that but by the end of the week I just didn't have that anymore and I had literally nothing left but just to push whatever came out and mm. it was just like this shout scream kind of sound it was like wait and I was all of a sudden hitting notes that were higher or different than what I could before because I wasn't trying to fit my voice into something that wasn't true to me or wasn't like really where I come from or what I've trained in uh, so David has allowed me, uh, doing this role has allowed me to explore more of that. I've heard you talk about a kind of going to church experience for the audience yeah. with this show. Is there um, a, a moment that feels like that really kicks in where you feel like a change from the from the stage? Um, I, I, for me, I kind of feel it. Like, you know, we have our first opening number, which is kind of like a, the standard, you know, you got to smile so bright the way you do things to do. And it's like very like the temp song and, and dance that you came to expect. Mm -hmm. um, Just feel but good. But immediately uh, Otis Williams, Derek Baskin, turns and starts talking to the audience and invites us in. He immediately starts talking about God and how God entered into his life. And I think at that very moment, it takes a shift to realize... Because A, he invites, he literally talks to the audience and invites them in. So like, you feel like you're sitting in his living room. He's telling you a story. And then he's talking to everybody and starts talking about God and how God did all these things for him and, you know, open these doors and what he'll never go back to. So it immediately takes that shift into a more spiritual and reverent, reverent place that, you know, the reason that we're all here is actually because of this first. And then we get to the show and we get to a moment like... Uh, Jarvis Manning, who plays Al, and sings Shout, and that's an actual, Shout is taken straight out of the church, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Even though everybody knows that as an R&B song, that's a church song, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So everybody's feeling that and clapping on the two and four, thank God. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people are getting to experience that and, like, kind of drop their, their guard and drop the fur coats and things that people come to Broadway shows with and clap their hands and be a part of this story, you know what I mean? Be a part of this music and feel it, you know. Uh, and then we continue to go down the roads of demons and, you know, where God mm -hmm. is all throughout it. So I, I think it, it, and this is cheers to Dominique, who wrote this mm. book in a way that I think from the very beginning, she knows the through line always was God. Mm. And that is also because of Otis Williams. Otis Williams, to this day, he acknowledges that. I remember the first piece of advice he ever gave me, even before he told me to th throw the mic up and catch it. He said, uh, one thing that his, uh, the reason I've survived, he's 77 years old now. And been in this, been in the temptation for almost sixty years or something like that. He said, "I get down on my knees till this day every night before I go to sleep." Like mm. that's that's these are the leaders of our of our story of our company. You know what I mean? So definitely have to it it trickles down that way. And I think for being in the audience, you have um, people who just find that those songs so um, nostalgic and familiar and just so catchy. I mean, like you know, fifty years later, like they're just such catchy, timeless, yeah. great songs. 
And and then they could that person could be sitting next to someone in the audience for whom the story and Detroit and the legacy and seeing this group of black men on stage, it has a, a, a bigger meaning and a heavier meaning. Yeah. It's just an interesting thing to be in an audience where you might have some people who are just at it for the entertainment yep. next to someone who might be like, you don't even understand how much this exactly. means to me. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's always, you know, that's, that's just sort of the truth of our industry. And there are people that, of course, that come and they pay they pay good money, and, you know, to sit in our show and be entertained. They didn't necessarily come to hear all the, the stories and the, the traumas of our country's history and all that kind of stuff. They came to relive their happy moments of when right. they sang My Girl to their daughter for the first time. And we have to we have to leave room that, for the fact that everybody's theater experience is valid. You know what I mean? And however somebody receives a story, whether they like it or not, whether they clap or whether they're moved, all of that stuff, all of it's valid. Um, and we have to we have to keep our through line, um, and just hope that at some point, even if they just came to purely be entertained, that maybe you heard one thing that you didn't know, or that one thing that, for us, humanizes these temptations, these five black men, but hopefully, therefore, humanizes black men in general for this country right now. You know what I mean? So you can see us as a little bit more than somebody that can sing and dance well, or somebody that can run with the football well, or somebody that can play basketball well. So I, I hope that even those people that just come to be entertained at least have a a, a glimpse of that. You know what I mean? Because even that that slight glimpse, that one thought, can maybe go a long way. Could maybe save somebody's life one night. You know? Hmm. Ephraim, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, my pleasure. Completely. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.